0: This morning we're going to read uh, uh, Revelation chapter 20. And I'm going to do as I've been doing. I'm just going to read it to you. I would recommend that you not read along, at least not at this point. We'll get into it in a moment. But I'd rather you simply listen. The book of Revelation was meant to be read by a lector uh, or a reader. Not everybody could read and write back in those days. And people would have listened and they would have let their minds go into... Uh, their imagination, the sacredness of their imagination, and thinking of what images they saw. And uh, so we're trying to reproduce that as best we can. So listen as I read, and then when we go back and start exegeting the passage, uh, you can follow along. And I'll be reading the entire chapter of Revelation chapter 20. Now hear God's word. After that, he must be released for a very little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from the prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were and they will be tormented day and night forever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. What the book of Revelation is telling the church, and what I've tried to communicate to you throughout this series, is that the book of Revelation had a context. That context was the first century church, and so it had to make sense to them. They had to understand what John was saying. So I have said all along, and I'll repeat it this morning, that the book of Revelation was not written specifically of way long future prophecies that would come to pass, especially in the 21st century, and especially in America. That's not what John was doing. He was not throwing off these prophecies into a far away future. They had an immediate context. But they also had implications for every generation that would, preced- that would follow. Every subsequent generation would experience In one way or another, the same things the early church experienced from Rome. Now this particular view is not accepted by everyone. uh, And I think it is to their detriment because if you read the book of Revelation chronologically, if you simply read it just every time John says in the book and he says it repeatedly, then I saw this, then I saw this, then I saw this. And if you take that as a chronological a timeline, it will become very confusing and you get into this very esoteric and what you see on late night Christian TV and all this stuff of people that are predicting the end times coming right now and the Antichrist and all this other stuff. And it can become what scholars call eschatological, eschatology being the, the study of end things, eschatological hysteria. If you study church history and even apocalyptic literature of the rabbis in ancient Israel, you will find that people experienced eschatological hysteria. And when you come to chapter 20, there's probably no chapter in the book of Revelation, maybe in all of the Bible, that is more confusing and can create more problems in interpretation. And I'm going to try to explain it as best you can. But Jesus himself Warned about eschatological hysteria. In Mark chapter 13 he said this. You all will recognize these words. Listen. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. Nations will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. Earthquakes, famines. All of that. This is the beginning of sorrows. He's not giving us some signal, okay, watch for these things, and then you'll know when the end is coming. He's saying the world is going to continue going like this. Don't be alarmed, and don't let anyone deceive you. And unfortunately, the church, if you go back and study church history, you will see over and over again the church getting deceived. The view that I'm using here was held by St. Augustine. If those of you that like St. Augustine, and I do... Uh, he he promoted this particular view. It fell in and out of favor over the years, and and so there basically there are three views, and I'll do them quickly. There's a premillennial view, which is what you see now in the United States. This is what left behind series by uh, Tim LaHaye and and uh, Jerry Jenkins were all about. Uh, Late Great Planet Earth. If any of you have read those things, it's the typical uh, dispensational idea that we're going to come up to a point. Uh, in history, and the church is going to be raptured or taken out of the world. And during the next seven years, they interpret the seven years that we've read about past chapters in Revelation, literally, that those are seven literal literal years of tribulation. At the end of the seven years, Jesus is going to come again. Okay, so there's a rapture, then He's going to come again at the end of seven years, and there's going to be another rapture And everybody is going to go to heaven. uh, And when we're going to come back to the earth, and Jesus is going to set up shop in Jerusalem uh, in the newly built temple. And he is going to reign in Jerusalem on the earth for 1,000 literal years. At the end of the 1,000 literal years, there's going to be another coming of the kingdom. And that's what you read in chapter 20. At the the, the end of the uh, 1,000 years, he's released. And there's another coming consummation. There's a post-millennial view that's premillennial. There's a post-millennial view that says that the world is going to just keep going on and on for we don't know how long but the gospel is going to sweep over the entire earth and take over the earth to such an extent that we are going to usher in a millennium. Almost everyone on earth is going to be a Christian or at least under the rule and reign of Christians. And at the end of that thousand year period of glory and goodness and peace over the whole earth, Jesus will then come back and there will be a second coming at the end of that millennial period. And then there's the view, the third view, which Augustine held and which I'm going to suggest is, the, is a better view, and it's what we call inaugurated millennialism, or also been called amillennialism. I don't think amillennialism is a good word because that means, that says no millennium. And we don't believe that there's no millennium. We believe that the millennium is symbolic and that it is occurring now. So throughout the book of Revelation, I have uh, tried to encourage you to look at the cycles, what we call recapitulation. And there's seven of these cycles that you see. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning as we begin looking at the text that this chapter twenty that follows immediately on the coming of Christ in chapter 19, uh, 11 through twenty five I think is what what it is here let 's see um, yes the 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 text from from twelve from seventeen i 'm sorry seventeen on in in chapter uh, or eleven actually it starts in eleven of chapter nineteen. That the, that the seventh cycle starts immediately again. When he says then, he's just seeing the whole thing over again. And if you go back and you look at these, and I'll have a handout in a few weeks that outlines all of this, and you can take it home and read the book of Revelation in this structure, and I think it's going to make a lot of sense. Instead of being this very confusing and frightening, and, you, oh my God, what do you do with all, well, it doesn't matter what I believe. Yes, it does. It's very important that you understand the message of Revelation regardless of which one of these particular views you adopt, it's important that you understand the message of Revelation. So, the message is this, that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated by Jesus Christ. We all believe, whatever view you take, everyone believes that. And that we are in a time of continuation, a missional continuation, when we are extending God's kingdom to the far reaches of the earth. And then there will come a time of consummation, However that happens, pre-millennial, post-millennial, whatever, there will come a time of consummation. And the church throughout every age, every single age of the church, from the church that was suffering under persecution in Rome to the church today in Nigeria that is suffering or North Korea that is suffering or, or uh, Aleppo, Syria that is suffering, wherever the church is and it is suffering, it is to know and have hope and cling to the hope that Jesus Christ is Lord and that He is victorious and they are not to take the mark of the beast. In other words, it's not a literal mark. It's not to adopt the thinking, the forehead or the hands, the acting that the beast promotes, which was idolatry and materialism and seductive luxury, the harlot and the lies of false religion, the false prophet. We are not to adopt those. And you see, this way, the book of Revelation has meaning throughout the ages, however long it lasts. It doesn't matter. And it will mean and be meaningful to everyone. Look at verses 1 through 6. What you see in chapter 20, 1 through 6, is simply the time between the first and second coming. I'm going to make the case, and you don't have to accept it, But I'm going to make the case, and it's not just me, there are many, many scholars, including St. Augustine and others, who believe this, that that time, that thousand years, is symbolic. And it is symbolic of the resurrection days after Jesus' resurrection to the time of his second coming. So as you look at chapter 20 and you look at 1 through 6, what you're seeing is thematic not chronological just like in other parts of revelation if you remember each time we saw these cycles he said then I saw then I saw he's just saying I saw this next didn't say it came next in chronology you'll get into all kinds of trouble if you try to do that and you have to become very very uh, esoteric in your interpretations it's what we see today but if it's thematic, then uh, verses 1 through 6 are simply the next cycle. And I think it is the seventh cycle. 7 through 15, the balance of the chapter, is the consummation again. It's the same scene that we saw in nineteen eleven through 21. It's that same scene, just replayed instantly. It's an instant replay. So, that's the general framework that we're going to work from. And we're going to ask the question we've asked every week. What do you see? Why do you see it? And who do you see? And I think if you use that little diagram in your mind of what you see and why you see it and who you see, it will make the book of Revelation relevant to you here in this 21st century. So what do we see? First of all, we see the binding of Satan. An angel came down from heaven, these are the first three verses, got the devil, bound him up with a chain, threw him in the bottomless pit, sealed it over him, closed it up, and bound him for a thousand years. Now numbers in the book of Revelation are not to be taken literal, I already told you that. There's no reason to start now and all of a sudden make them literal, because you get into all kinds of problems when you take numbers literally. They are meant to convey something. thousand years is meant to convey long, long time. Long time. We don't know how long. He's in the pit. He's shut up. And there's a reason. In fact, in Greek, it's, it's called a, uh, uh, a hina clause. It's, it's a clause that gives you the reason why all of this is being done. In English... It's so that. When you read so that, you can look back and see what was going on and this is the reason why he's being bound, why he's being shut up, why he's being locked away. He is being bound so that he may not deceive the nations any longer. That's the purpose. Until the thousand years are ended. And then he is released for a little while very, very short time. The words that are used, very short. So what he's saying is basically this. He's saying, look, at the resurrection of Jesus, the cross and the resurrection, Satan was cast down. In fact, I would suggest you go back and look at chapter 12. He uses the identical words in chapter 12 where he sees Satan trying to devour the woman and Michael the archangel has, takes battle with him and throws him down, throws Satan down to the earth Uh, it doesn't say a thousand years, but he throws him down and it does say that he goes after the church to persecute them. So what John is saying to people that are reading this, saying, you know, Jesus was so victorious that Satan was bound. He was rendered helpless. His deceptive voice, his ability to deceive the nations was taken away, was stripped away. And do you know that history, anywhere the gospel has wanted to go in history, anywhere it goes. Communist Russia tried to stop the Bible and what did people do? They smuggled them in. They tried to stop Christianity in China and it has grown beyond anybody's wildest dream. They've tried to stop it in other places and it's never been able to be stopped. Maybe for a while they've made it hard And what John is saying, expect that. Expect persecution. He's been saying it throughout the book. But Satan has been bound. He is powerless. He's able to persecute, yes. He's able to lie and deceive, yes. But not on the scale that he ever did before. In fact, if you look back in the Old Testament, he was able to deceive entire cultures and nations. Do you know that even in Nazi Germany, with all of the crushing power of nazism there were multitudes of people that opposed the nazi regime and how long did it last 12 years 12 years this reich that was supposed to last a thousand years lasted 12 years and it was defeated So don't imagine that Satan is just all powerful and he's out there and he's just overthrowing the world and everything is going down. The fact of the matter is, Jesus Christ has bound him in a way that he cannot deceive the world. Now, at some point in the future, many scholars believe, we don't know when that's going to be, he will be released for a very brief time, almost that fast. And he will deceive the nations, and they will gather together for this final battle that we've seen recapitulated over and over again. The battle is, is repeated uh, at least three times uh, from chapter 16, 17, and then 19, and then again in 20. The same battle, same battle of Armageddon. This chapter is just recapitulating Armageddon, okay? Okay. So the devil's power is severely curtailed during this period of the church. Ask yourself this. Why are you here today? You're here today because Satan was bound. And he could not deceive you. And Jesus Christ came and brought light into your life and what did you do? Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what does He do? He saves you. And you're free to live your life without any penalty of sin against you, and the power of Satan has been broken, that's what the book of Romans is about, chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8 of the book of Romans, is telling you, let, do not let sin have dominion over you. You don't have to. You can say no to Satan. Well, wow, but sin is so powerful. No, it's not. In fact, the Apostle Paul goes to the extremity. He said, you are dead to sin. You're dead to it. You're alive to God. Well, then why does sin have so much power over me? Well, that's another sermon. So we'll look at that some other time. Or you can come into the Q&A after. I'll help you with it. The incarnation, John Stott called the incarnation the life of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the session of Jesus on the Father's throne in glory, getting the Father handed Him, the the, the scepter of righteousness, put it in His hand, and Jesus is ruling and reigning from heaven. He is not a king in absentia. He is the king. And He's ruling right now. And Satan is on His leash And it's a very short leash. And will be for a long, long time. John Stock called that whole thing the cross complex. Dr. Johnson in his commentary said, The resurrection of Christ is the great, listen, the great spiritual watershed. You know, we think that Jesus coming is just Christmas. Christmas trees and gifts, and you know, and the shepherds and the wise men, and that's all beautiful, and we love it. I love Christmas, but it's so much more than that. The earth shook, the earth changed, and it has never been the same after the incarnation of Christ and after his cross and resurrection. Nothing was the same, and nothing ever will be the same again, ever. It is a great spiritual watershed. Satan was able to deceive whole nations, whole cultures. The Gentiles were enthralled under Satan. And even Israel and Judah, even God's chosen people. That's what the whole, almost the whole Old Testament is about. From, from the history books, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, and the prophets are all about God's people being deceived by Satan and falling completely under his control. And Jesus comes and he breaks that control. And unfortunately, we actually live, the Christian church, very often, as if he's in control. And we're just hoping for the rapture. Oh gosh, if the rapture would just come, I could get out of here. Why would you want to get out of here? We're going to live here forever. He's coming back. Next, next uh, uh, sermon is going to be on chapter 21. New heavens and earth coming down. And God dwelling among His people here on this creation. Amazing. He's telling you, invest in your your world. Invest in your career. Invest in your family. Invest in your life. Push back the darkness. I will come. I will build my church. I will establish my kingdom. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. A great message. A visionary message. Not of defeat, but of victory. And so he says, persevere, hang in, don't give up. I'm faithful, I am true. I will never leave you or forsake you. And that's what he's telling this early church who was literally being murdered and persecuted by the government. And he's telling us today, no matter where you live, he's telling you, persevere, trust me. I tell you every Sunday after the sermon ends. will you trust him, trust him, trust him. The second thing he said, look at verses 4 through 6, very quickly. There's these thrones, people seated on the thrones, and he says the souls, these are the souls of martyrs. We've seen them already in chapter 6. We've seen them a couple other times. These are people that have died, and they are in heaven, and they're safe. So Satan has been bound. That's the first thing you see. Second thing you see is that the church, that's you and I, we are safe. Listen to me. We are safe. Even in death. Even in death, we are safe. Satan cannot take us when we die. In fact, when we die, when our eyes close, we will experience. The first resurrection. That's what he's talking about here. This is the first resurrection. He's not talking about a bodily resurrection. He doesn't say body anywhere. He does say soul. He uses the word suke. And he uses the word soul. And he says these are souls. That were beheaded. Or refused to take the mark of the beast. And they find themselves. In God's presence at death. This is a first resurrection. And this second resurrection and the second death will not affect them they are safe and you need to know that or you can become very discouraged in your life and cancer comes i've i've had two cancers in the past uh, 8 years two i wake up every morning wondering what the third one's going to be it's terrifying or you lose a job. Or your family comes apart. Or you, you got a child that goes off the rails. Or you, or, or you lose, you know, whatever the case is. Or, or, or you just get old and die. You need to know that you're safe. That you're safe in Jesus' arms. That He will not let you go. That death is not anything to be feared again. He has conquered Death, hell, and the grave. 4 through 6, the church is safe in death. And then 7 through 15, look at I don't have time to get into all the details, but I'll be happy to share them with you in the Q&A. The final, final, scene of judgment seven through fifteen, the thousand years ends. He releases Satan. Some scholars uh, say this is going to be uh, Satan is literally going to be released, and that he will literally deceive perhaps the nations. Others say no, it's probably a, a a a real release of Satan, but he is just going to spiritually deceive the world, and it's going to be an instantaneous thing, and and the end is going to come, and and uh, you you. You may experience it in certain places in the world, but it's not going to be global. I don't really know. I don't know that the text really tells us. But we do know that there will be a time, we do know from starting at the very beginning, that these battles, particularly with the battle of Armageddon in chapter 16, we see the same battle repeated over and over. One scholar asked the question in his commentary, he said, how many times can you burn up the world? Why would we think that there are these repeated returns of Jesus over and over in another battle, in another battle, in another battle? And each battle is described in catastrophic, world-ending terms. So how many times does he blow the world up? Gosh, he only flooded it once. Why would he nuke it four or five times? No, this is one battle that is just repeated over and over from different camera angles. That's what you're seeing. Seven through 15. And at the end of that, look where the devil goes in 10 verses 10 and on. The devil is captured and he's thrown into the lake of fire. What did we see in chapter 19? Beast and false prophet went where? Lake of fire. Harlot in chapter 17 and 18, she's destroyed and she's burning up. Beast and false prophet in lake of fire. Now chapter 20, Satan in lake of fire. This is just simply a recap of what has happened in each, each one of these sections before, okay? Why are you saying it? You need to understand. We need to, the, the church then was under intense persecution, probably under Domitian. Nero was too early, but probably Domitian, that was when the intense persecution came. And really, we think that the persecution that came under the Roman Empire to the early church went on for hundreds of years. It didn't. It went on for a few decades and under a few emperors, and it ended pretty quickly. And before too long, the worst thing that could ever happen to the church happened. It became accepted by the Roman Empire and became the national religion of the Roman Empire, which was its first real test. And you know what happened, don't you? We failed the test. Christendom was the worst thing that ever happened to to Christianity. And so we, the church today, we need to beware of politics and, and mixing politics and religion and nationalism and all these things that you see and have seen throughout history. They are detrimental to us. And our antenna should shoot up when we see that. And we should know. And you're warned by your pastor who knows all things. Beware of those voices telling you it's this or it's that or it's something else. Read your Bible. We cannot trust those false prophets and those words. Satan's power is now bound. The church needed to know it then. You need to know it now. We have the name of Jesus. And we're to use that name. Even in countries where the gospel is forbidden, places like Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, North Korea, you all have probably read the stories. Even where it is absolutely forbidden and no one can even go there, what happens? They have dreams. They have visions. These Muslims will have visions of Jesus. He's standing there telling them the gospel. He is powerless. Even in places where it is culturally hard soil. In our world today, culturally hard soil is a place like Japan. Very hard, very difficult soil. Uh, Pakistan, very hard, very difficult soil. Even in places like that, the gospel still makes inroads. And Satan is powerless there. And missionaries go. And even in places where it is culturally, where the soil and the people are asleep and seduced and complacent like the United States of America or Britain or Western Europe where people are rolling in luxury. We're drowning in luxury. Now I'm not drowning in luxury. I have an old iPhone. But some of you have a 10 and you're drowning in luxury. Now, you get the picture. I mean, come on. We, we, we live in the United States. We live in a land of milk and honey. And it's really easy to, to fall asleep, to become complacent. Latest surveys out now are saying that millennials don't believe in sharing their faith. They don't think we ought to be evangelizing. We shouldn't be telling people the gospel. I mean, why should we try to change somebody? What right do we have? And so this comedian, uh, what's his name, Penn Pen and, Pen and Teller, do you all know that comedian? He's an atheist, Penn. And he asked the question, It's been, on national news. He doesn't believe, and he says, how much do you have to hate somebody not to share the gospel with them? If you really believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he's, and he said that, I mean, just right out. He said, how much do you have to hate somebody not to share that with him, if you really believe it. But see, I don't know that we really believe it. But I'm hoping that these words will go deeply into your heart and you'll see that Satan's power is now bound. That the church is secure. Even now, you're safe. You have nothing to fear. So, oh, I don't know, I'm afraid all the time. Jesus said, do not fear. The Bible says 365, interesting, right? One for every day. 365 times it tells us do not fear. Do you have doubts? Yeah, I have doubts. Everybody doubts. But fear, do not fear. No matter come what may. We are safe. And Satan whatever that final deception is, folks, whatever it is, whatever however it looks, it's going to be brief, very brief. And who do you see? Let me finish with this. Look at verse 11. Who do you see? You see a great white throne and you see Him who is seated on it. And we know this. We know this from the New Testament that Jesus Christ was caught up into heaven on a cloud. We saw it at the end of Luke. We see it in the beginning of the book of Acts. Jesus goes up in a cloud to his father and where does jesus christ sit he sits in the throne of his father he jesus john even said in his gospel john said all judgment has been committed to the son the son will judge the world and the world will be judged By the Son of God. Jesus is the great figure. The Father too. We believe in the Trinity. We have this Trinitarian doctrine where they're all present and all share the same essence but in three persons. But what we're we're called upon to see is this great King, this righteous judge who is seated on the throne, who has the right to judge and what does he do? He opens a book And in that book is written somebody's name, Chuck, Isaac, just my name, by the way. No, somebody's name, your name is written in that book. And Jesus says, he's mine. This one is mine. And that book is set over here, and that book, they don't experience the second death. They don't see the final judgment. They are not taken into the lake of fire with death and Hades and the sea giving up its dead and all these horrible, horrible scenes that you see. No! We're in the book of life. And everybody else is judged according to what they've done. And Like I told you last week, He's not going to judge people and, and, and burn them alive and do all these things to people that were generally good. He has some other plan for them. I don't know what it is. We seem to think that everybody, all these babies are going to get thrown into the, you know, and and children and innocent people. That is not, He is not going to make any mistakes in the final judgment. He will judge rightly and equitably. And He will do what is right. And you should know that. And we should be dancing. Even though we're Presbyterians, we should be dancing. So excited that God would write our name in the book that the judge, this great judge, Doesn't just pass over judgment and say, "Oh, all the oxen free, Chuck can come in." No, this judge. What does he do? He goes into jail for me. Goes into the grave for me. Goes on to the cross for me, for me, as me. He takes my judgment this great and righteous judge, this loving God, whose loving kindness and tender mercies never come to an end. He absorbs the judgment for those whose names are written in the book of life and he grants them an eternal kingdom. And judgment passes over from them. And our bodies are indeed resurrected on that day. And we are rejoined to our bodies. And there is a general resurrection of both the living that go on to be with Christ forever and those who go into the lake of fire. Yes, there's all that, that horrible picture. But also a beautiful picture of victorious people saved by grace. Simply because the judge stood in for them, took their punishment upon himself, took their penalty. That is the gospel. And John is saying in no uncertain terms, we have to see him. We have to behold our God, see him on the throne, making that judgment in our favor. Because he stood in for us. That's what trusting Jesus is all about. Maybe you're here today. You don't say, you know, I've never trusted. You. All that, all faith in Christ is that I don't want to take. I don't. I know that I deserve judgment, but I'm afraid to be judged. I don't want to end up in the lake of fire. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. And He says, if anyone comes to me, I will not turn them away. Who would turn away from that? We will all stand in the judgment seat of Christ at some point. I don't want to go in there alone, To you? I don't want to stand on my own merits. Good night. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you've got to trust Him every day. So the question for you is the same. Will you trust Him right now, today, and tomorrow, next day, even if you've been a believer all your life? We still must put our faith in Christ. Yes? Amen. Father, thank you for this time together. We, we know that these scenes of judgment are terrifying. They're meant to be terrifying. They are, they are meant to make our knees knock together and to look on the futility of our works and our goodness that ever, we could ever stand before you and hold up one good thing that we have done and say, this is worth my life. That would have been fine if Jesus hadn't come. If he hadn't come, we could, we could just go on our own merit. But he came, and you saw the law perfectly fulfilled by him. You saw love unbridled as he gave himself for us. And so we beg you, Father, please build this into our hearts so that we will know you. And when we come to the table in a few minutes, I pray that today, of all days, of all Sundays, that you would make this a very special day for some of us a day when we truly hunger and thirst after Jesus Christ, our righteousness. I pray that you'll do that for us. As we come and hold that bread in our hand and take that cup, that we know it's nothing less than the blood and body of our Lord Jesus for us, that He loved us that much, and that judgment has passed over from us to Him. I pray you'll do that for us today. Amen.